Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Over the last few months, I've spoken to many business leaders about how they're navigating the pandemic, both personally and professionally as heads of companies. My guest today has been described as a hero of the pandemic. I will be humbled by that honor forever. Meet Jane Mosbaka Morris, founder and CEO of To The Market, a company that connects businesses and consumers to socially and environmentally responsible products from around the world. It's about saying, this is what I believe, and then deciding what are the types of goods that I can commit to buying that reflect those values. Call it consumerism with a conscience. When the pandemic hit, she got a network of makers, small businesses that would usually be making bags or accessories, to make something else instead. We went and we asked them if they could make masks and gowns, and an overwhelming number of them said, yes, we would love to. Not only would we love to um, have the opportunity to help um, to fight COVID, but we are also very, very excited about the economic opportunity. Jane is also the author of a book called Buy the Change You Want to See. We spoke about that, about what each one of us can do to become a conscious consumer, and I asked this entrepreneur who used to work in counter-terrorism why she decided to launch her business. So when I heard that access to capital was sort of the critical piece because money is power, it changed the way I thought about how I wanted to spend my time on this planet. Here's my conversation with Jane Mosbacher Morris. Jane, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. Jane, you are passionate about consumerism with a conscience. What does that mean? I'd love to hear in your words. What does consumerism with a conscience mean? Consumerism with a conscience to me means that people are aligning their purchasing power with their values. And so it doesn't have to look the same way for everyone, meaning it doesn't have to all be about sustainability or all be about um, a specific value set or cause. It's about saying, this is what I believe. And that could be, I believe in empowering women. I believe in empowering people of color. I believe in fair trade certified labor. And then deciding what are the types of goods that I can commit to buying that reflect those values. And how does your company to the market reflect those values? So to the market is on a mission to change retail manufacturing. So to literally change the way that products are made so that we empower people and protect the planet. And the way that we go about doing that is we partner with suppliers. So makers who are actually creating these goods in a way that is better for people and better for the planet. 
and we bring their story forward. So it makes it easier for consumers and businesses to align those values with their purchasing power because they then have an option of saying, okay, I need to have a t-shirt made and I can have it made in a local union factory, or I can have it made at a fair trade certified factory, or I can have it made at a women owned and operated factory. And that's giving them choices so that they better understand who's making their product, how it's made, and then how it aligns with their values. And these makers are all over the world? They are all over the world. So To The Market has partners, which we call uh, non-traditional makers. And we call them non-traditional only because they haven't had the same opportunities to participate in the global supply chain as traditional big factories. And they range from small artisan groups and rural areas of countries that are, are still very much so developing to union factories in the United States and everywhere in between. Fair trade certified factories, GOTS organic certified factories, women owned and operated factories. These are all suppliers, again, who are better for people, better for the planet, have been pushed out of the system by traditional retail brokers into the market is giving them access to the global marketplace and clients access to them who are interested in working with these types of suppliers. So these types of suppliers are all over the world and you connect them with buyers in the US or buyers who are also all over the world and typically what kind of products do they make? Can you give us just a few examples? So we focus on four categories. One is newer. Um, So previous to COVID, I would say that we produced apparel, accessories, and home goods. Mm -hmm. And clients are all over the world. We as a business are based primarily in the United States. So the vast majority of our clients to date have been US-based businesses. But we've also serviced businesses, for example, in London, like Farfetch, who have made uh, significant commitments to sustainability, um, which is very exciting. And uh, the newest category that we started producing in 2020 was PPE. And so we were able to actually leverage all of the really talented cut and sew makers that we have all over the world who may have been making backstrap loom bags or, um, you know, uniforms or other forms of apparel accessories. We went and we asked them if they could make masks and gowns and an overwhelming number of them said, yes, we would love to, not only would we love to um, have the opportunity to help um, to fight COVID, but we are also very, very excited about the economic opportunity. So these makers who were making bags or clothes pivoted, basically turned around their business model or tweaked their business, tweaked their businesses to then start making PPE kit, right? Scrubs, gowns, masks. They did. It, it was extraordinarily impressive. So cut and sew makers have the ability to look at what's called a technical pack or a tech pack, which mm-hmm. is really like a blueprint, the way that you would think of a blueprint for a house. And they're able to sort of create a product based off of that technical pack. And so they could be looking at, you know, making a heart-shaped pillow if they're a cut and sew maker, or they could be looking at how do I make an isolation gown? Mm -hmm. And so when COVID began, and it was very clear that there was a shortage of PPE around the world, 
but the United States was facing a particularly big shortage in PPE, yeah. we went and asked our suppliers who are able to produce cut and sew products if they would be willing to try to make masks and gowns. And we gave them a technical pack, a tech pack to do that. And again, the vast majority of them had faced canceled orders from other clients and were also extremely nervous about having to shut down their factory, lay off their staff. Um, And oftentimes these are uh, communities that don't necessarily have a safety net. Um, They don't necessarily have savings. And so if you're even talking about a couple of weeks of lost wages, many of these folks are in a really challenging position. And so the opportunity to pivot um, and make something like masks and gowns um, was, was, you know, a very viable option because not only were they able to potentially pay the, the folks who worked in the facility, but they also were legally allowed to stay open. Because in many countries, if you are making PPE, you are allowed to be open when other facilities that weren't making PPE had to remain closed. So there were two things going on here. You allowed these makers to stay in business, so they still had work and they continued to earn money. But you also fulfilled the gap in the U.S. market, the shortage for PPE. Yes, it was, um, you know, it was a really neat example of aligning incentives, And so, you know, we had incentives uh, across from the client down to the supplier. So the client, of course, incentive is that we need PPE and we're facing a a big shortage, some of which is contributed by the fact that many countries have closed production or there are challenges in importing from certain countries. Um, Regardless, there was a tremendous need that needed to be filled. And then you have in the middle, someone like to the market who has a syndicated supply chain. So we have over 200 suppliers in more than 40 countries, which, you know, even if you sort of throw out the social good associated with what we're doing, we had access to makers all over the world, which meant that if you have sort of rolling closures in countries, we were able to pivot and source from alternative places, which was really important. And then you also had, of course, the suppliers that we talked about who we're saying, you know, first of all, I want to help. Um, I want to be a part of the solution. And second of all, I'm incentivized to do what I can to be a part of the solution, not only because I feel like it's the right thing, but also because I too am so motivated to, to keep um, the folks who work with me employed. You've been called a hero of the pandemic because of the work you've uh, done. And I can see you smile very modestly over there. What does it mean to you to be called a hero of the pandemic? Uh, I remember when it came out, it actually made me really nervous uh, because I think it was uh, some, some major imposter syndrome. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, hugely humbling. Uh, I mean, deeply grateful. I will be humbled by that honor forever. But it also made me so deeply proud of, the business that we had built, my teammates, how hard they worked to find all new buyers. Um, We hadn't ever serviced hospitals prior to COVID. And so the fact that they were able to identify, you know, hospitals, find contact information, sell into them, um, as well as our operations team be able to work so seamlessly with our suppliers to get the specifications right for the masks, for the gowns, and then work on 
you know, getting this product either uh, to the client from the union factories in the US or imported um, from some of our overseas suppliers. It, to me, is a testament of, I think, sort of business functioning at its sort of highest and best use. This must have been challenging, though. You're based in the US, your makers are around the world. How did you manage to sort of get it all to come together, you know, with you being in one part of the world, makers are everywhere, to get everybody to realign and to do what they've done and produce so many units of PPE equipment? How did you manage to do that, to pull it all off? Well, I think that building trust with our makers has been really critical. And so uh, we have a process um, that makers have to go through to be vetted and approved for us to be able to work with them. And if they are vetted and approved, then they sit in what we call our vendor matrix, um, which is essentially a um, matrix of approved suppliers that reflects to us capabilities, production capacity, story. Um, We have all sorts of um, points of data about them. And I think that because they, as suppliers are excited about someone like to the market coming in and saying, we believe that you are just as good, if not better than the big factories who have maybe questionable environmental and social footprints. And we think you're just as capable of servicing Fortune 100 companies, if not more capable. I believe that they they feel like we believe in them and um, that we are championing for them. And um, because of that, I think they are willing to, to work with us. And when we came to this with this new idea, you know, can you make this type of product? I think that they trusted that we would do our very best to try to sell the product. If they were able to, to make it, that, that there was a very good chance that we would be able to give them purchase orders and be able to sell that product effectively. How does a business leader build trust? Well, I think it takes time. And I think it takes setting clear expectations about what you stand for. So when we introduce ourselves to our makers, which you know are some of our stakeholders, and, and you can translate this into any other industry, when a business person, um, and you can be a not-for-profit person as well, because everybody engages with stakeholders, um, both on sort of the investor donor side and then sort of the recipient or partner side, I think making clear what it is you believe in what you're trying to accomplish is really critical because then they have something to benchmark you against. Okay. They came to me and they said that they believed this and they're trying to accomplish that. How are they doing in the way that they engage with me? Is it reflective of what they're saying they're trying to accomplish or not? And so I think we've benefited from having a very clear mission I mean, even though we're, you know, a venture backed business. So, you know, we are a for-profit business that focuses on leveraging the markets to make change. We've always been very clear with what we're trying to accomplish from a mission standpoint. And so I think that has given both, again, investors, employees, uh, makers that we partner with trust because the mission is clear and then there's accountability if we're not operating in a way that's reflective of the mission.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You are, as you say, a for-profit business, yet it's obviously very important to you that your business also does good. Why is this so personal for you? Why is it so important for you that your business also is a force for good? Well, I started my career in a totally different uh, space. So I started at the Department of State, um, which is essentially sort of um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for the United States. And... I was working on counterterrorism and I was specifically focused on women. Um, so I was focused on not only um, the role of women within terrorist organizations. So, you know, what was happening for, for if we acknowledge that women are equal to men, that means they can be just as good and just as bad. Yes. So I was looking at the role of women within terrorist organizations, but uh, far more importantly, because there's far more folks um, that are not in terrorist organizations, I was looking at the role of women in fighting terrorism. Mm. So how were countries and nonprofits and um, international organizations engaging women on this topic of fighting terrorism? And what I found is that there wasn't a lot of that going on. A lot of the uh, traditional way to fight terrorism is through military training and law enforcement training. And the security sector in almost every country around the world is dominated by men, which is fine, but mm -hmm. it means that you're not talking to women about this norm of terrorism. Is it okay or is it not okay yeah. to use violence to, to, uh, against non-combatants to, to uh, achieve a political objective? And so I started generating these programs to focus on engaging women uh, in the security sector and in, in civil um, society to learn about fighting terrorism and spending time on the ground in places like Afghanistan, the biggest piece of feedback I got from women was this is valuable. Whatever, you know, whatever type of training it was, capacity building, um, lobbying to have um, more women's rights or having you know, more seats at the table for women and peace negotiations, all valuable, but nothing was as valuable. They told me as giving them access to capital Mm. And that could be capital that they earned, ideally. It could be capital that they shared. So the ability to actually access money within, you know, between your spouse or inherited. And so when I heard that access to capital was sort of the critical piece because money is power, it changed the way I thought about how I wanted to spend my time on this planet. And it, it really made me think about, well, what would possibly be my role in helping to create and sustain jobs for vulnerable persons, particularly women. So meaning people that are, again, overlooked, underrepresented, not given a fair shake. Um, what is my potential role in, in helping to um, change that? And I ended up landing on the retail industry because the production of product is the second largest economy in the developing world. And it's an economy that's dominated by women. 
And so it's one that very well suited what I was trying to accomplish, job creation, job sustainment in a dignified way for women. And so ultimately, when I think about to the market success, I want to incentivize actually women across our value chain. I want women in our cap table to make money and men, but certainly I want more women in our cap table to participate than in traditional companies. I want our employees to be able to make change and to you know, build a livelihood for themselves. And I want the makers in our supply chain to have you know, an opportunity to generate steady income and um, in, the, in the meantime, help, help the world sort of move away from reliance on, again, these traditional factories who have challenging environmental and social footprints. How many of your makers are women? Oh, the vast majority, I would say um, probably 90 to 95% are women, which is what is unique is that um, many of our uh, makers are owned and operated by women. What's not unique, actually, interestingly enough, is that operators, which is the term in the retail industry for folks who literally work in a factory, the vast majority of garment workers, even in in, uh, factories with these tough environmental and social footprints, are in fact women. So this is an industry that is dominated by the hard work Mm -hmm. of women. What's interesting is that most of the time, even if it's a female brand, it's run by a man. Even if it's a female focused, uh, again, retail organization, most of the investors tend to be men. And again, I love, love, love men. My point though, is that women have worked hard in this industry for a very long time. They haven't always been the ones that are making money off of the industry. And that is exciting to me that you can make change on the ground for makers and you can make change, um, for the employees, for the teammates, and for the investors. So across the value chain. You have a book out, By the Change You Want to See. So tell us a little bit about uh, what the book is about. So the book is all about how do we make it easier for those who have the ability to make choices around how they spend their money to be conscious consumers. And just as we spoke about at the beginning, conscious consumer doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't mean that you only, you know, buy union product or you only buy eco product. It could be that you decide that you're going to spend a portion of your income on made in America product because you fundamentally believe in uh, bringing retail manufacturing or manufacturing in general back to the U.S. Or it could be that you commit to buying, you know, 20% of your product for, you know, gifts, let's say, from uh, businesses that are owned by people of color. It's this idea of everyone has purchasing power. Some people have more than others, but we all have purchasing power. For those of us who have choices around how we spend, because not everyone does, but for those who do have choices about how they spend their money, there's an opportunity to make change by aligning your purchasing power with your values. And what's super interesting to me is when I point out that the average American has more ability to sort of make choices around the money they spend. So they have more sort of disposable income that they may be able to make sort of more definitive choices about who they spend their money with. Then they likely have um, the ability to give away to charity. Hmm, So meaning again, 
if I, as Jane, am most incentivized by empowering women, that happens to be the value that is most exciting to me. Um, my husband is from Kentucky. He saw a tremendous a lot, a number of factories closing. And so he is really excited about Made in America product. To me, I have the ability to, you know, commit my budget for gifts to, to buy from women-owned businesses. That is likely a much higher number than what I'm able to afford to donate to women's organizations. Mm -hmm. And you've said that I can make a difference by even choosing where I want to buy a cup of coffee from, right? Yes. Coffee is always my favorite topic because <laughs> I'm such a strong, I, yes, I'm such a strong coffee advocate slash major coffee drinker throughout the course of every single day of my life. Um, but yes, coffee is this great uh, example of a product that is, has such a, has done such a wonderful job of, of having a transparent supply chain. And it hasn't always been that way, but there have been businesses that have made significant investments into the supply chain, like Starbucks, like Pete's Coffee, so that it's easier for us as consumers to understand the environmental footprint of coffee and the makers behind the coffee. So this is grown by farmers in Guatemala and it's, you know, single source and it is um, fair trade certified and it's bird friendly. Um, literally there are so many specific types of certifications that coffee growers can now obtain. Bird friendly is one of my favorites, but uh, there are so many. Um, and that to me is very exciting because it's a clear example of where I think other products, particularly retail will go, where you have really clear ways to see, does this product align with my values? How do we see that as a consumer? How do I know which of the products I'm buying has been ethically or environmentally responsibly sourced? So I think that becoming sort of your own Sherlock Holmes is a, is a sort right. of good first start, right? So yeah. this sounds silly, but literally because of increased regulation, there are more and more statements on companies' websites about what they're doing to fight exploitation in their mm -hmm. supply chain and what they're doing to advance sustainability. And so even starting online um, on the website is a really powerful place to start. A another place to start would be um, literally just looking at the labels. And yeah. so certain industries like food and beverage have really clear labeling. Other industries like the, the industry we're in, apparel, accessories, home goods, PPE, not as clear of labels. So what you can do though, is when you look at the labels, you can begin to, to learn more about the quote ingredients. So, okay, this is made of organic cotton. Um, this is a sustainable, a more sustainable option than conventional cotton. Or I see that this was made in India and I see the fair trade sewing uh, sign on it, on the tag. That is a signal to me that it was made uh, in, in a, a place that had fair wages. And so beginning to sort of read the labels the same way you would pick up uh, something in the grocery store and look on the back and see, you know, where is it from? What are the quote ingredients? Mm -hmm. I think beginning to learn more about materials, countries with strong uh, labor laws, those that do not, and then beginning to make choices accordingly. 
That's fantastic. Jane, you're doing such amazing work. And thank you so much for speaking to me on Out of Office today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was my conversation with Jane Mosbecker Morris. I hope you enjoyed it and got some ideas about how you can make a difference through the products you buy. I know that I certainly did. I'm Malika Kapoor. This episode was produced by Jordan Gasparay. I hope you'll take a few minutes to check out other episodes of Out of Office and you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. We'll be back next week. Till then, stay well and thank you for listening. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.